Hello, I'm Dr. Mandy Leto, and this is Enough, the podcast. If you're a longtime listener to the pod, you'll know that a lot of these pivotal experiences that create beliefs of not enoughness come from childhood. You'll recognize that from Sasha Mitrovanov's story in the previous episode. Please do yourself the favor of listening to that one if you haven't already. I'm curious if we can minimize the risk of raising kids who chronically doubt themselves. Is that possible? I asked today's guest, Dr. Ann Lane, who says it's all about creating a safe space to help our kids digest their emotions. It is not about fixing or rescuing them. <clears throat> Something that I have sometimes tended to do, but practicing self-compassion. Anyway, this episode is radically practical. Dr. Ann and I talk about two areas where not enoughness can really play out with our kids. Grades at school, and body image. Then Dr. Ann tells us how not to get our undies in a wad about perfect parenting. I drop us right into the conversation about what to do when your child comes home with a less than stellar grade and is feeling not good enough. Let's dive in. So Dr. Ann Lane, my daughter came home the other day with a physics paper and she was not very happy with the red pen on that physics paper. And she went down the rabbit hole of, oh, I'm not good at physics. I, I don't like the teacher. The teacher doesn't like me. Why do I have to do this? Like, what do you even do with physics? Blah, 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 blah. And I found myself immediately coming in and saying, no, no, the teacher doesn't, the teacher doesn't have a problem with you and fixing and sorting and all of this. And she just walked away with the paper and kind of, oh, and I realized that if there was somebody like the super nanny or Dr. Ann Lane standing there with a clipboard, glasses at the end of her nose, judging my parenting in that moment, I probably would have had some red pen on my clipboard review too. <laughs> what do we do when our kid comes home with a bad grade and they're completely despondent about it? Help us, please. Oh, Mandy, it's so hard. I would absolutely not have put a red red mark on a clipboard. I'd have said, look at that mummy trying so hard for her girl. It, it's really, it's heartbreaking sometimes. Our children, their, their value is measured at school quite often through these very tight little marks so that all their energy, all their aliveness, all of their kind of passion becomes condensed down to a little mark, doesn't it? And we're there seeing all of that hurt and all of that, that uh, pain and, and seeing that very narrow view. We want to widen that view. We want to sort of stand back to, 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 to zoom out. What I'd say, uh, the, the most helpful thing at that moment when they're in pain, when they have that sort of tightened response that, that I'm not good enough, this is not good enough, I can't bear it is the most important thing at that time is to connect with them and with that feeling. And that means, Mandy, that means saying, oh, darling, tell me what's happened. Tell me about it. And she'll say something like, well, it's pathetic. This is a pathetic mark and I, I, I'm never going to get this. And I hate this subject and I hate that teacher and I'm useless. You know, it, it's, it's big, isn't it? It's tight, strong language. And you are trying to create a bit of space for her at that moment, a bit of space for her to, to begin to 
reflect on this and big find a, a bigger a bigger frame in her mind so you'll say something like it's so tricky it's so painful when these tight little marks come back and she'll say it's not a tight little mark so she might get quite cross <laughs> you know, cross at the language that's all fine and you can say and was that with the, just clarify a little bit, and that was with your physics. Yes, mummy, the physics I tried so hard with, the physics I, I spent, you know, three nights working to. And you simply keep pulling back to the emotion. That sounds really difficult. That sounds so hard, sweetheart. So at that point, you're just trying to connect and soothe. And you can say, tell me, what, what, did, what did the teacher say? Well, she's just said, she's just put a red mark through it, mum. <sighs> And you breathe out, Mandy, you breathe out, you give it space, you give it time. You say all sorts of sort of gentle connecting things like, oh, it's so hard. These exams are so hard. You, you put in a lot of effort and sometimes the marks are OK and sometimes they're really difficult marks to get. Now, at that moment, you're not trying to fix the whole thing. You're just giving it a little space and connecting. Now, of course, you can come back a bit later. So you might say, come stay downstairs with me for a bit. Let me make a cup of tea with you. Come and come and be near me. Um, and, and they may or may not, not want to. <laughs> they might as well storm up. That's absolutely fine. But later what happens is that once all of that big heat and that energy comes, your child normally comes back a little bit more when they found you sort of receptive and open to say a little bit more about it. So they might be a bit glum or a bit sort of heavy in their body language, a bit fed up. And you can say, how are you feeling now? Well, I'm, I'm a bit rubbish. They might say something a little bit lower at that point. And you can say, what do you, uh, did you have any conversations with the other girls? And you can find out a little bit more about it. Yes, and Jessica got a 99%. <laughs> and, you know, Hugo uh, aced it as usual without doing any work. Again, you're trying not to give specific advice. So every bit of you wants to come in and say, oh, well, it will be better next time. Or it doesn't matter so much. Physics isn't your main subject. Or um, I bet they studied far harder than they're letting on. So you want to sort of put in lots of pieces of advice or information to, to get her to a sort of wider frame. But the best thing you can do is just still stay very with her and say, what do you think about that? So if she says Jessica, you know, uh, did it and she didn't do any studying, you can say, what do you think about that? And she'll probably come up with, I think she probably did a little bit more than she said, mummy. <laughs> or, or it is her, it is her A1 subject. It's the thing she always does well in. Or she might well say, I don't know. I don't know, mum. I, I feel really fed up with it. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I feel really bad about going in next time doesn't matter it doesn't matter what they say your role as a parent is to provide that safe space that sounding board that gentle presence that I, I'm open to all of this you can tell me anything about it I'm not going to try and fix it or solve it I'm just going to give you the space to find your own feet to reflect on it to begin to digest those emotions so what do we do after that once once the emotion has been released and it seems to be kind of like a balloon deflating and then it falls on the floor empty and sort of sad looking yeah yeah and what <laughs> that's a really important stage so freud used to say that his his main um, aim for his patients was that they hit a sort of depressive realism 
as opposed to some neuroticism. I'm going to work harder or faster. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fight this. We want to, it's quite healthy for them to be a bit foggy, a bit fed up for a while. That's not a problem. That is absolutely not a problem. Life has ups, it has downs. We feel encouraged, we feel motivated, we feel demotivated. But the more they are able just to sort of find their feet in that, the more sort of new, gentle, more authentic sort of motivation comes. Well, this is this is what I can do. This is what I will do to pull up my mark. This is not a disaster. This is something my mum can tolerate. I can tolerate it too. Because our children learn how they feel about things through our presence. Ooh, that is really, really important. We're setting up for what we as parents are setting the standard for what amount of failure, I'm using air quotes here, our child can learn to tolerate and to process in a more healthy way. That's right. That's right. The more they can digest and process it and, and become sort of... Um, Comfortable is the wrong word. I, I mean, just not very tight or very reactive, more responsive to it, thinking about it. Because in our everybody's life, we have to decide what we care about, what we don't care so much about, what we'll give our time and energy to, uh, and what our talents are, what our values are. So our child is trying to decide, okay, is physics really the most important thing to me? Maybe it is very important. Therefore, I need to go back to the teacher. I need to make a sort of plan. But that always happens best with a sort of really calm, anchored sort of emotional system. They might decide it's not the most important thing to them, but they need to do a little bit of work. So they'll go in and check out sort of the paper and their answers and ask their teachers uh, a little bit. But they they won't do another sort of three-nighter to try and prepare. And that's actually okay. That's okay. That's them working out how much they're going to invest in this, how much they care about the marks, what they want. And, and ultimately, that's where the motivation for anything has to come. It has to come from a sort of deep place inside themselves. We can't motivate our children. We can only provide that sort of safe space where they can think about it and reflect. And it feels so counterintuitive, particularly being raised by an overachiever myself, mm -hmm. that it feels like if you just allow all this softness and tea and <laughs> hugging and no, oh, isn't that super hard? Like you're going to raise a generation of slackers, right? This is like what that part of my brain is saying, like, it's child is coming down being very stressed, but you might well have another child who's just very bleak about it. And, and peed off and doesn't want to think about it. So you might well have a child who's also got that feeling of not good enough inside, but he reacts with it with a, I don't care. Still, your role is to meet that, to talk to that, to say, you're feeling really fed up about it. You're feeling really disinterested in it now. It, it's had a, it, it seems to have had quite a big effect on you. Mm, well, mm. <laughs> you're you're trying to get their emotions shifting and changing and becoming so curious again, as opposed to feeling just stuck. And the way we do that is by simply asking and allowing and repeating back some of their phrases to them. Yes. And just kind yes. of holding that safe space. It's holding that space. It's creating that space. It's not pushing or pulling them or criticizing. It's getting really curious and moving in to it. 
So loads of empathy, tea, if they'll have it, maybe a bit of physical contact, a little hug, if they'll have it, empathizing and no fixing, particularly at the beginning. A hundred percent. And often the hug is for the bit later. Sometimes they sort of push you off or brush you off in that initial stress. And that's quite normal. Sometimes it's later on when they've come back downstairs again, that you can sort of put your arm around them. And if the, if you have a child who says something quite brutal about themselves, like, mm-hmm. oh, I suck. I'm so rubbish. I'm so stupid. What do you say then? So what you want to do is you want to take them back to the emotion and away from this sense of me. This is me. So if a child says, I'm I'm rubbish, I'm an idiot, I'm a I I can't do anything or what's wrong with me our temptation is to go in at that level and start saying there's nothing wrong with you we sort of get we we cannot bear it we cannot bear that attack on 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 their sense of self but the best thing is to say you're feeling so you just insert the word you're feeling rubbish you're feeling really negative about this test or about how hard you tried and what actually happened. So you move it away from their personhood. <laughs> you step back a little bit. And your feeling is a really good um, word to pop in. Your feeling, or it seems as though, or um, this is really hard. You take it back to the situation and away from them. But you don't have to challenge. You don't sort of tell it because sometimes there's a struggle then. So sometimes if you were to say, Mandy, there's nothing wrong with you and don't ever say that. They'll say the struggle begins and they'll think it'll simply escalate. There is. I'm rubbish. I'm I'm an idiot. I'm I'm stupid. I've got no memory. You don't want to get into that fight because that just tightens everything up. You just say you're feeling. You're feeling rubbish about this. You're feeling that it's been really hard to remember enough for this test. You're you, it, on this situation. It, the, the test didn't work out despite the amount of work you've done. So you're just taking it subtly back. Okay, so since this stuff is better than Banoffee Pie, let's have a second helping and a quick recap. As parents, we're trying to create a wider frame for this situation. So on the back of your child's achievement-oriented disappointment, whatever it might be, it's about saying gentle, connecting things. No advising, no fixing, and none of the, well, what were you expecting? You should have studied harder. None of those kind of comments either. As tempting and as easily as those might roll off the tongue. Your child is probably already being hard on themselves. And some might say things like, oh, I'm rubbish. Again, it's so tempting to disagree and say, oh, you're not. Instead, try taking them back to the emotion and moving it away from their personhood. So the I'm stupid, you might react to that by saying, oh, you're feeling really rubbish. That your feeling phrase is a real winner. So try that one out. Next, we're moving on to the challenges of body image. And particularly in a time of social media where there's pictures of tanned abs and California teeth and perfect bodies and muscles everywhere. How can we help our kids to cultivate positive body image. Let's get back to Dr. Anne. When children come, we, we, we can see it from quite a young age. They'll come and they'll say something like, I'm ugly or I'm fat or I don't like my hair. 
the temptation again is to say your hair's beautiful you're not ugly you're not fat <laughs> you're perfectly shaped and it's to do that sort of reassurance but what parents often find is that just doesn't seem to to crack it it doesn't seem to work that it, it goes away for maybe a a, a a few hours but it pops back again and that's reinforced by the playground it's reinforced by social media it's reinforced by magazines and people in the media um, so when we're thinking about that, what we want to do is, is, yes, we do want to limit social media use. I think it is really important that there are some sense of social media for under 13s is actually not legal to put them on sort of Instagram or Facebook or any of the other <laughs> numerous before 13. But children do. There are a lot of children on it or they'll definitely see other children or their peers using it. So what we want to do is at our home, the conversations we have around bodies, the way we relate to our own bodies becomes a lot more, come on, better word, even functional. <laughs> it's more, what does your body need today? So if your child, I, I, I see a lot, especially girls starting restricting their eating at around the age of 11 or 12, they start watching what they're eating or commenting on what other people are eating. And I do like to go back to the conversation of, what does your body feel like it needs today? So if they're saying, I'm not going to eat that, that will make me fat or that's too, uh, you know, nobody has lunch at school today, <laughs> mum. I want to go back with my children and say, but what does your body need? What does it, what does it feel like having? What would it have if no one was watching? And it, it's, it just takes a lot of this ourselves, because I think we all, uh, lots of parents also embody this sense of not being okay. So it's again, it's watching what we say around our own bodies and how we critique them if we see photos of ourselves, <laughs> getting very much <laughs> just thinking, oh, I want to say, oh God, delete that photo. But actually I'm going to, to, to say nothing about it. I'm going to move on. And it's that sort of language we use around it. So I know for myself that my body image really changed as I had babies. It really changed when I got over sort of a very painful back and I began to appreciate my body as something that did things for me. It was it was a, a clever body. It had healed that pain. It had carried three babies. It had varicose veins, it had stretched marks. It was saggy, but my God, it had done a lot of work for me and it was a, a loyal trooper. <laughs> and I think it's those sort of conversations around our children uh, and in the praise we give them. So a really interesting um, uh, piece of research was done to look at how different children are praised by their parents. And the praise that a girl will receive is going to is so much more about how she looks. Oh, you are beautiful. You are very pretty. Look at your lovely hair. Look at your lovely skin. You're lovely and tall. Lots of focus on, on girls' bodies. Boys have, look how strong you are. Look how fast you are. <laughs> look how quick you are. Which is has a, has a downside sometimes, but it opens up a lot more possibilities for them sort of using their bodies as, as vehicles to go out into the world as opposed to just looking pretty. So what should we say instead of, of complimenting on how cute they are, or how pretty they are? What should we say instead to, to girls? So the, lots of the data has said it's really helpful to say things like, gosh, look how strong you are. Are you feeling energetic at the moment? You know, that was 
that was tricky going up there. Did you feel sturdy in your body or did your body feel a bit nervous? So it's just trying to get them to tune in constantly to how their body feels about different situations. Of course, of course, they're going to look gorgeous sometimes. And you will just say, oh, you look gorgeous in that. It's just, it's quite normal. But it's just trying to get that balance and, and, and focus ourselves on. So another thing I think is a good opportunity is if they ever hurt themselves, you'll say, what does your body need right now? Does it need to be sitting down a little bit? Does it need me to rub a body? Or I'll say, look how quickly it's repairing itself. Or it's struggling to repair itself. Should we, should we think about a little bit of, about putting a, a, a plaster or resting it? Trying to get them back to thinking of our body as, as, as a, something that serves us and is useful for us and carries us and holds us and feels for us and doesn't have to, to look in a particular way. I don't know if it struck you when you were listening to this, but these questions Dr. Anne suggests are also brilliant for you, just saying. For example, what does your body need right now? So good, right? And also viewing the body as something in service of all the things that we do from moving to healing and honoring that out loud. That benefits both you and your kids. Next, we're going to hear Anne's tips on how we can relax ourselves as parents already, especially if we were raised in families where there was pressure to achieve or to be or look a certain way. Those old patterns can bubble up. Back to Dr. Anne. I didn't walk until I was two and a half and I was the biggest, chubbiest baby toddler. It wasn't really toddling, sorry. <laughs> biggest, chubbiest little girl there is. And the health visitors were constantly telling my mother that I needed to lose weight. This was the 70s. You know, it was all about uh, need to need to she needs to be eating less. Of course, I wasn't moving. So it was a nice cuddly shape because I wasn't standing up on my legs. So so my body hadn't changed shape. But there was such a lot of uh, comparison between me and my sister. So my sister was allowed butter and marmalade on her toast and I had to have marge, spread marge. So I absolutely, when it came to my daughter, I had this sense of, one, I don't want her to be uh, uh, deprived of food or have any judgment about what she eats compared to the boys. I do not want that. But I also had a secret issue with thinking, and I hope she's not going to be chubby like me, which was a quieter, more impulsive worry. So it was quieter and quicker. And I think the difficulty is trying to notice when that sort of pain enters into and that fear comes into my parenting. Noticing the effect it has, because it absolutely has an effect. It doesn't matter how much I think about this or process it, it creeps in. There is me thinking, should you be having the third bowl of Cocoa Pops like your skinny brother? Should you be having it? And trying to notice that. Noticing also, too, when I when I jump or I get cross when she sneaked a chocolate bar. And trying to, to come back to that later, and reflect on it and repair and just give it a bit more ease. And I think it is. It's really difficult when you've had those experiences yourself to then come to a sort of really... Uh, enlightened middle space as a parent with the people you care most about in the world. I think once we're in that dialogue of feel, staying in that dialogue of feeling not enough, that is something we've inherited from childhood. And it's something that then 
seeps into our parenting, even when we're trying to you know not to do it wrong. There's this pressure, the pressure, same pressure of being a good enough parent. And I'm wondering, like, can we ever get it right? <laughs> I really like the way you put it there. Our feelings of good enoughness, we can sort of just begin to feel our children aren't good enough and they will need to change. We will need to sort of force this direction, shift them over to something different because this cannot possibly, they cannot possibly be okay just unfolding into themselves. That could not possibly okay be okay. Now, do we ever get the balance with that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Parenting is is a complete. <laughs> it it is it's chaotic. We're all over the place. We misjudge things. I used to have an old um, supervisor. She used to say it's like to- making toast. You know, you burn it, you underdo it. You burn it, you underdo it. We are constantly shifting around, trying to find our balance, trying to, to work things through. Feeling frustrated, feeling cross, criticizing our child. They criticize us, criticizing ourselves. And then trying to find a bit of space within that and reflect on it and, and see what we can learn from it and where we need to go from it. But it, it is there is no such thing as perfect parenting. Absolutely. It does not exist. And if we tried to be perfect parenting, we would not create enough space for our child to discover things on their own by themselves. We would not develop and learn and adapt. We would become tighter Uh, and it would become more of a performance all of the time when really we're meant to be constantly responding. What we ultimately want is we want them to be responsive to all the different situations they come across and to be able to process things, rebalance, make a judgment of it. All of those tight emotions like shame or not enoughness, they tend to to make us very reactive rather than responsive. And the difference between a reaction and response is that response is slower. It's more thought through. It brings in more of our other experiences and our values. And and it's it's a much stronger way of responding. Whereas when we're just trying to judge something really quickly and reacting to it, we we can't bring in all of those resources. We can't bring in the support of other people or our own sense of what we need or what we want. And I ask every guest to leave a brick of wisdom at the end of the show, whatever you're present to, a mantra, a thought, an idea, a story, a word, what would you leave listeners with? I suppose I'd like to stay with that idea of repairs, how central and important repairs are. So in Japan, when they break a vase, they repair it with gold leaf glue because the repair makes the vase more precious than it was in the beginning. It has a story now. It it was cared about, thought was given to it. it. It embodies something more than it had before it was broken. And I'd say the same about our relationship with our children. Every time I get something and I get things, oh God, I get things wrong with my parenting. I can be grumpy and judgmental and snappy and a a, a very difficult parent. But the one thing that always gives me heart is that each situation we go through, we can return to, 
I can be honest about it, I can be reflective and we can repair this. And in that repair will become a new level of understanding and appreciation for each person's situation. My child will, will learn something about life, about my reactions, about how other people in their life might react to them and learn to process that in a way that if we hadn't made that mistake and they were to only meet that for the first time when they were 25, they wouldn't have that, that coaching through it, that sense of reflection and space. So, so that's the one thing I'd like to say is that it doesn't matter doesn't matter how much people mess up and some parents have really painfully painfully mess up with their children and there are painful situations and they come back and they repair fully and honestly and openly with their child they learn they become stronger and more resilient as parents and their children learn at the same time and the relationship gains trust there's this commitment that grows thank you so much for playing with us today i think everyone is going to feel uplifted and tooled up as a result of this conversation. Thank you so much, Anne. It's been such a pleasure, Mandy. Such a pleasure. I hope you got some ideas from Dr. Anne Lane about some things you can implement into your parenting right away. And thank you so much in advance for sharing this episode with a fellow parent who might benefit from this. Hugely grateful for your support on that. Next week on the pod, I have Dr. Aaron Baker, and we talk about their story of moving from an overachiever to someone who's now figured out what their natural state of achievement is. And while in figuring out what our natural state of achievement is, instead of the one foisted on us by capitalism and how we need to be hustling constantly, what if we tuned in to what we really want and what if for a time we need to operate from a place of MVP, Minimum Viable Productivity? Here's a snippet of what you can expect. In the tech world, we have this thing called Minimum Viable Product, which is basically whatever gets launched in the world, say Facebook stories, we don't create the full perfect thing out there in the world. We put out what is just minimally valuable to people that we can continue to add on to it. And I said to some clients during the pandemic, I said, what if MVP is not minimum viable product? It's minimum viable productivity. And so the edge that many of my clients who are in the corporate world, or I've done this with my entrepreneur clients too, is when you need to get back to that natural productivity, how can you take your current work and have the courage to do the minimum viable productivity? Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. I'm so grateful that you're here. And why not head over to my website at mandyletto.com and sign up for The Juice, a twice-weekly, pithy, wisdom-filled truth bomb that will land in your inbox twice a week to help keep you on track in between podcast episodes. Thank you for being here. See you next week.